Well, um, as we get into a new year, um, you know, I wasn't here two weeks ago uh, when, when Tyler preached and uh, welcomed uh, not just a new year for us, but also our, our 11th year as a church uh, family, which is a, a crazy, uh, I don't want to call it an accomplishment, I guess. It's nothing we accomplished. It's something the Lord has given us, um, but just a, 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 an amazing milestone uh, to be here for 11 years um, and to see all the many things that the Lord has done. Um, as we get into a new year, every year, of course, um, as Tyler shared two weeks ago, we always spend the first few Sundays uh, really looking at the most important things uh, in our life, the things that should be our fuel, the things that, um, uh, that we should recalibrate our lives and say, okay, we, we, we know there's nothing special about a, a, a number change, but it's just a good marker for us to be able to take advantage of, uh, of, a, of a change of a year to say, okay, let's Let's stop, let's reset, let's recalibrate, let's sort of um, recalculate our route on, with our GPS um, and really aligning ourselves with what we know are the most important things that keep us connected to the source of true power in our life, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, we've got to always, not just every year, but every day, uh, we have to recalibrate all the time because we get this drift we, we, our, our hearts just get um, askew. And so every day we should be doing this, but we take a particular time at the beginning of the year to recalibrate as a church family and kind of set our true north again so that we can remind ourselves of how to be connected to the power of Christ, his spirit working in us. The Holy Spirit working that, that powerful good news that's alive and at work within us. And this year we have this particular theme that we're looking at, this series that we're in right now is the roots of our family tree. We're looking at the roots, the three main roots that God has given our church family. And I don't mean just Life Mission Church. I mean our, the church family, historically, our family tree, our lineage. God has given us three primary roots that help us to connect with the power of Christ. And this is not just unique to our church. This is what God has given the church. And this year we want to look more deeply at what that means to, to be a church as part of this historic family tree, what it means to be part of the church, what it means to be a church, first of all, but then also a church that's part of the church. We, we have to know what this is all about. We've been going through Acts, we've been watching the church be born and then grow, go through growing pains, persecution, we look during Advent at our family tree, us being grafted into the true Israel, which is Jesus Christ. We looked at the inheritance that we have as God's people. We looked at the kingdom of God being already not yet, as I just mentioned in my prayer, and what it means for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth as the church. And so this year we wanna, we wanna build on that more and more, to grow in the one another ministry learning how to minister one to another more deeply. And not just those in this room, but those in your own families, in your community groups, your neighbors, people you work with. How to be stretched. The only way we grow, church, is if we're stretched. If we stay in our comfort zones and we just kind of do what we're familiar with and comfortable with, we will not grow. It is good to be stretched. It's not fun to be stretched, but it's good to be stretched. And so this year we want to be stretched. What does it mean to be a church that's part of the church 
And how can we grow? I'll say this. Every single person in this room, myself included, we are not living the potential of what God has for us. Can, I mean, can you say amen to that? I can say amen to that. I know for a fact I am not living the potential that God has for me because of fear, because of lack of faith, because of timidity, because of you name it, all the you name it. And so this year, let's, let's stretch ourselves. Let, let's, get a little, let's get a little awkward. <laughs> let's, let's, let's feel a little pain, right? Because we want to grow. We want to do this together as a church family. So that's what we are hoping to, to look more deeply at this coming year. And we're going to see that more on, on Sundays. The last maybe couple months, we've been doing a little bit more kind of interacting with each other. Uh, spending time maybe praying for each other. Maybe it's during communion or after service, whatever it might be. We want to see that more in our community groups. We want to see that more in your personal interactions. We want to see more of this one another ministry, us growing and being stretched as people, as God's people. On the last Sunday of of this last year, uh, which was New Year's Eve day, uh, many of you wrote down the different ways you want to grow uh, in the coming year, there's a lot of similar themes, as you could imagine, growing uh, in better habits in the Word of God, growing as a, a person of prayer, being able to share your faith. One thing that we're going to be doing to stretch ourselves this year, um, uh, the end of last year, we did a workshop for parents, uh, how to raise uh, get your, your teens through kind of the, the awkward transition of puberty, things like that, but also a lot of the stuff that's going on in culture. Uh, we want to continue doing these kinds of workshops to help us grow this year we're going to be looking at um, uh, workshops to help us grow in uh, the tactics in which we share our faith. Uh, how can we be more effective, more efficient with sharing our faith with people who don't know Jesus? You have spoken. You said, I want to grow in this. So we're going to grow in this this year. We're going to make these things available to us because we need to grow in these things. We need to be stretched. So I, I, there's a lot of things this year that we want to grow in, and I hope that we all can grow in this together. And I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this year, seeing it as a very stretching and growing year for us together. And we've all said this is what we want, right? So we're going to put our money where our mouth is, right? We said we want to grow in the Word of God and prayer and evangelism, so let's do that together. Let's commit to saying, all right, I'm willing to be stretched. I don't want to be stretched. I say it but I don't really want it, but I'm willing to walk this out. Now for today, just jumping into, back into this sermon here, uh, Tyler kicked off the series a couple weeks ago uh, by looking at the Word of God. And rather than today going into the, the second one, which would be prayer, we're going to do a part two of the Word of God. It's going to be a little bit different this morning uh, compared to what we would normally do maybe um, for one of these sermons. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, I think it was right after the new year, uh, I did a, a fight club with some of our high school students. Uh, we got together. Uh, we had an awesome time. Um, they, like us adults, they also want to grow in their faith. It was awesome just to hear the kinds of conversations that they're having with friends, that they want to have with friends, that they don't know how to have with friends, but they want to. They want to grow in their faith just like we do. They also specifically said, we want to grow in learning how to defend our faith. We don't know how to defend our faith as well as we could. Um, they want to learn how to share their faith with their friends. That was even one of the reasons why I'm 
you know, it was, it was awesome because what you guys wrote down, us adults, were saying, we want to grow in this, so let's do this together. One topic they desired specifically to know more about was they wanted to know about the reliability of the Bible. Is the Bible reliable? Can I trust it? Because my friends say it's not trustworthy. So can I trust it? Now, firstly, even as we look at being able to share our faith with our friends who don't know Jesus, that's one of the main things they attack, isn't it? Well, the Bible, the Bible, there's, you know, the Bible's faulty, all these things. And if we're not familiar with the arguments, but more importantly, if we're not familiar with the facts, then our evangelism can be stopped dead in our tracks because we kind of feel like we're caught. So we can talk all about what the Bible is and why it's important and what it does for us, and that those are important sermons. We can talk about our desire to be able to share our faith with others better. But before we do any of that, we have to first, we have to be convinced of the reliability of the Bible. We have to be convinced of that. So I want to pray. We're going to look at a couple verses that are going to frame sort of our, our, our mentality, our perspective as we go in. Uh, and we're going to look at the Bible and how reliable it actually is. Father in heaven, I thank you that um, you have not left us here as orphans. You've given us your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our leader, our guide. And you've also left us your word. You've given us your word as a lamp to our feet. It is our guide. It's the light that lights our path. As Tyler preached a couple weeks ago, it's the light that brings light into darkness. And there's so much darkness in this life. There's so much darkness in our own hearts and our own desires. There's so much. And so we need your light and we need the light of your word. But God, help us to, to be able to trust your word. Um, doubt, doubts aren't bad. Doubts are healthy. Um, doubts force us to wrestle with things. Um, and so I know that uh, all of us, myself included, we've, we've had many, many doubts about many things, about the existence of God. We've had doubts about the reliability of the word. Um, these things are good for us to wrestle with, not just to brush under the rug and just maybe deal with another day, but it's good for us to face them. And maybe today might not be the day that some of that doubt ends, uh, but hopefully today is maybe just uh, one step in a direction uh, for some of us who struggle with some of these doubts. So help us. Help us to know more about your word. Help us to know the trustworthiness of your word. We thank you that you've given us this great gift. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for a new year. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So two uh, sections of scripture I want to just have frame our minds, and we'll, we'll get to these a little bit later on, but I want this to start off with these. Psalm 119, verse 89 and 90. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Always remember that, church. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. A little bit later in Psalm 138, verse two and three, one of my favorite scriptures about the word of God. 
I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God has exalted above all things. Two things, his name and his word. God values his name and his word above all else. And he has fixed his word in the heavens for all eternity. And the psalmist says, on the day that I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. So we'll get back to those a little bit later, but I wanted them to frame uh, what we're going to be looking at. So I have a question to start off. What are some of the most common objections that some people in your life say about the Bible? What, what do they say? Written by man. So therefore, it's no good. Contradictory? Copied over with many times of mistakes, contradictions, okay. Made up stories, okay, so fables, right, good. Anything else? Those are the big ones, right? Those are the big ones. And, and here's the thing, some of these are actually true. We're gonna get into that. You're like, what are you talking about? I don't like this church anymore. <laughs> no, some of this stuff is true. And so, and that's, but when we hear these things, we, we can get on our heels and go, oh, I never thought about that. I don't know how to answer that. If we just have a little bit of information, we can actually stand firm in this. We can face these kinds of accusations. So, so think about this for a second. If I wrote a story about something that happened in my life, say 10 years ago, how, how accurate do you think the story would be generally? Like something maybe like when we planted the church, I'm, I'm writing about when we planted this church, I write some stories down. How accurate do you think my story would probably be? Yeah, <laughs> some of you shouldn't answer. <laughs> uh, what would you say, Shell? Ninety percent. That's thank you. That thank you. That's very generous. About ninety percent. Okay, so I, I could be pretty accurate. Now, if I wanted to really tell a lie about the origin of our church, whatever, ten years ago, and I really wanted to fabricate something and make something up, how how successful do you think I'd be in getting away with that? Not very. How come? Yes. A lot of you guys were there, right? Like you guys be able to say, that is not how that happened. That 10%, you got to change that a little bit, right? So the closer we are to the actual event, the more accurate the telling and the more accountability we actually have. So it wouldn't be easy for me to fabricate a bunch of stuff that happened 10, 15 years ago. We're going to start, we're going to play a little game right now because here's one of the accusations that people have. Uh, same thing about the, the copies and, and alterations and stuff. The telephone game. Right? We know the telephone game. That's what people say. Well, the Bible is like the telephone game. It gets passed down, and then people change things. They make mistakes, but then they purposely change stuff and twist stuff. So we're going to play the telephone game. Uh, hopefully it's not too distracting for you, so you can still focus on me for a, just a couple minutes. We're going to start over here with, oh, it's Luke Varela. It's Luke Varela we're going to start with. So Luke, I want you to start, just go to here. You can kind of serpentine back. I want you to start by telling your granddaughter what your favorite hobby to do on a weekend is. All right. We're already doomed, church. Um, but so just, you guys can just kind of do that. And I'm going to continue. So try not to watch this whole spectacle. It'll get to you eventually. Uh, we're just going to see how this goes. Um, point of this so far is that <laughs> it's much harder to tell an elaborate lie the closer you are to witnesses, to living witnesses. The Gospels were written close enough 
to the actual events to have been cross-checked by those who were still alive in that day. So, for instance, we don't, we don't know the exact dates that the Gospels were originally written, but it's likely that either Mark or Matthew was written by about 50 A.D. So we're talking maybe 15, 20 years, maybe even earlier than 50 A.D., but probably 15 or 20-ish years after the death of Christ. That's not very long. Also, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, verse 6. Paul's telling the Corinthians, Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Some of these guys have died. Now, why does Paul mention this? Why does he mention this thing about Jesus appearing to 500 people? Was it just like, man, isn't that cool? That's Nino, isn't he? He appeared to 500 people. How cool is that? He's not pointing this out just because it's cool. Isn't that neat that he appeared to 500 people? No, what he's telling the Corinthians is, look, if you don't believe me, go ask the other 500 people that saw it. He's challenging them. He's saying, don't don't take my word for it. There's 500 other people that saw him alive. There's a few that have passed away, but they're mostly alive. I'm not making this thing up. You can cross-check me. Does that make sense? He's not just bragging about how cool it was that Jesus showed up to 500 people. He's actually making a claim saying, look, you you can tell that I am not lying about this. There are other witnesses. These people are still alive. That's important, church. That's important for us to know. He's saying, you don't believe me? Go ask him yourself. So we know the Bible was written close to the actual events. But does that mean that the Bible was not actually, has it, has it been changed? Is that what that means? Can it still be changed? So where are we at in our telephone game? Who's got it? Who was the last one? Okay, so what, what, what do we have? What was, what's Luke's favorite thing to do on the weekend? Play with Joby and Stephen. Okay. I don't know who Stephen is. So, Luke, is that your favorite thing to do on the weekend? No, it's not. What, what, what's your favorite thing? Drop my daughters off at the fire station. <laughs> drop, drop your granddaughters off at the fire station. Turned into... Yes. Yeah, so, so the connection is clear. It only took, what, like eight people. Uh, oh, oh, Steve. Okay, this one's Stevie. Okay, that's who Stevie is. Granddaughter. Okay. Do you th- oh, you think so? <laughs> okay. So, cl- very quickly, this translates into something else. Now, how do we know that Luke's favorite, I think actually it is his favorite hobby is to play with me on the weekends, but <laughs> how, how do we know that his favorite hobby is not to play with Joby and Stevie on the weekend? Right? He, he's here, right? He's, he can tell us the fact of the matter. Now, this is what people, though, say about the Bible, that, look, if this can happen over just a a couple minutes, it's clearly going to happen over thousands of years and so many hands that get on the Bible. Now, at first, you kind of say, gosh, that makes sense. If it can happen this simply, how would it not happen for something like the Bible? But consider this. Scripture has always been cherished and protected. Uh, in, In law enforcement, for instance, you have what's called a chain of custody, right? You gather evidence. You don't just put it in your pocket, then throw it in your desk drawer, let it sit there where anyone can get their hands on it, right? There is a chain of custody. These things are carefully taken, labeled, photographed. It's handed to the next person or department. That is chronicled. There's multiple eyes. Everyone double checks and triple checks. If anything is broken, it's inadmissible in court. 
it's thrown out. There's a chain of custody. And the same thing has happened actually with the scriptures. Collecting evidence is not like the telephone game, right? It's not like the telephone game, and neither is scripture. There's checks and balances to protect the integrity. Uh, the earliest caretakers of the text, because they considered this a divinely inspired document worthy of careful preservation, the Old Testament scribes, what they did, if they made a mistake, so they're writing it down, and they don't just hand it in and they, no one reads it, right? They hand it in, everyone, like, they're, they're looking, they're comparing, they're making sure. If there's a mistake, these Old Testament scribes had to dump out their inkwell, take off their garments, go take a bath, burn the paper, the, the papyrus that was being written on the scroll, come back, put on new clothes, get new ink, and then start a brand new draft, now imagine if we did that for our telephone game, right? I think we would probably have accuracy by the time it got to Dave, right? If there was that kind of oversight, that kind of checks and balances, we'd probably have a, a much better uh, chain of command uh, that, uh, that happens even just in our telephone game. Now within the first generation, after the New Testament disciples, we actually know who their students were, who their personal disciples were. Clement of Rome was a student of both Paul and Peter. Ignatius of Antioch was a student of Peter and John. And then Ignatius of Antioch was actually friends with Polycarp, who was a student of John. So we actually know where this chain of command goes. Who are the guys that, that took on the scriptures? And it's not just one, like the telephone game. One person is in charge of the message. This message is spreading. There's now multiple copies, multiple people, multiple accountability. These guys are friends with each other. They're double-checking and cross-checking all of their scriptures. So when these scriptures are handed down, they're meticulously protected before they're copied and sent out to the churches and in the different regions. Lots of double-checking, lots of accountability. So in other words, no one just snuck in the closet where the scripture was kept, where they kept the scrolls, and they just made some changes to make this sin okay or make this thing a sin, and then snuck out and no one noticed. That's not how it works. Now, another reason why it's nothing like the telephone game, not only are there multiple eyes and accountability upon this process, but there's also multiple copies that you're dealing with. So because I went through this with the high schoolers a few weeks ago, I'm gonna have them help me out here. So you guys who know, who are, six or seven of you, come on up here as I volunteer you to. Um, I'm gonna have them, we're gonna pretend like they're sending a text message to uh, a friend and inviting them to church, okay? And so they're going to read this text message. Now, every one of these text messages has something wrong with it. So there are textual variants, just like with the copies of Scripture. All the copies of Scripture we have, there are variants. So that part's true. That's what I'm saying. That part's true. There's some misspellings. There's maybe a number that's wrong or whatever it might be. Okay, so does that mean that the, the, uh, the, the Scripture is not reliable? So that's what we're going to find out here. So let's start over here with Mr. Nathaniel. Uh, do you want to, can you just do it louder? Do you have a, do you have a mic? Okay. Yeah, do the microphone. Yeah, for the, for the folks at home too. So, so, so what we're going to try to figure out is can we tell what the original message was even though all of these messages are screwed up? Go ahead. Um, our church meets at 10 a.m. at Classical Academy in Poway and Pastor Joby is super cool. Wait, wait, Pastor Joby is what? Super cool. Wait, in the microphone. Super cool. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, all right. 
Our church meets at 10 a.m. at Classical Academy in Escondido, and Coach Joby is super cool. So Coach Joby is super cool. Well, I'll take that too. Thank you. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at Classical Academy, and Pastor Tyler is super cool. Oh, a little shout-out for Pastor Tyler there. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at San Pasqual High School in Escondido, and Pastor Joby is super cool. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. Our church meets at 7 a.m. at Classical Academy in Escondido, and Pastor Joby is super cool. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Our soccer team meets at 10 a.m. at Classical Academy, and Pastor Joby is super cool. Thank you very much for that. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at Classical Academy in Escondido, and Pastor Joby is a big-time nerd. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. You've done a great job. You can keep your cards as a souvenir. Uh, <laughs> so... Yes. So we, we, heard, we heard seven messages that were similar, but they all had contradictions in them. So are they, can, we, can we not know what the original message is? Can you guys guess what the original message really actually was? I'm super cool. That part was accurate. Something happens on Sunday, and I'm involved with it. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at Classical Academy in Escondido, and Pastor Joe be super cool, right? I don't know who wrote those messages, personally, but, uh, but even though there are textual variants in all these, these seven copies, we can tell with an incredibly high degree of probability what the original text said, even though we don't have the original text. Does that make sense? Can we be very confident? And, and that's just for seven, right? So, so let, let's, let's check this out. Consider this. There's not just seven but there's 251 copies of Julius Caesar's writings. Okay, 251 copies. The oldest copy is 950 years after he wrote them. So we're not talking about just 20 years, 30 years. We're talking about 950 years later. That's the earliest copy we have. And there's 251 copies. So not just seven, but 251. Furthermore, there's not just seven, but there's 600 copies of Homer's Iliad, which is... Uh, and the oldest of that one is, is 500 years removed from the original writing. Now, with both of those, because there's 251 copies and there's 600 copies that match very well with themselves, the 600, the 251, they all have textual variants, just like our text messages here. But because there's 251 copies, 600 copies, even though they're 500 and 800 years, whatever, later, scholars believe that there's something like an 85 or 89% accuracy uh, because they have so much evidence that they know what the original really probably was. They have great confidence in the originals, even though there's only 251 and only 600 that were written hundreds of years, copied 600 years after the original. So that's, that's pretty good. But check this out for the Bible. The Bible destroys those two. Homer's Iliad, by the way, is second place, Okay. The Bible, there's almost 6,000 copies just of the Greek New Testament, Greek being the original language, 6,000 copies, but there's also 19,000 other ancient manuscripts that were in other languages such as Latin. Right, so all told, there's over 25,000 ancient manuscripts. We have an entire New Testament in, uh, complete by 300 AD, just uh, 200 years after the, the final uh, originals were written. Right? So we, we have so much, it just destroys second place, which is Homer's Iliad. 
And as far as this, we have, we have a gospel of John, fragments of the gospel of John from just 15 years after John was written. That's incredible. That is incredible. Church, the, the, the Bible is, is like the Michael Jordan of ancient manuscripts, right? It, it, nothing else can touch it. There is no other ancient book on this planet that is even close to the Bible. Second place, I mean, comparing it to second place, which is Homer's Iliad, that's like, that's like comparing Michael Jordan to Dwayne Farrell. Do you guys remember Dwayne Farrell? Yeah, me neither. That's the point, right? The Bible is in a class of its own, a complete class of its own. Yet scholars don't touch Homer or Caesar because those books are in fact very reliable. They, they shouldn't really question it too much because there's a lot of proof that those are, are very accurate. Yet the Bible is 40 times more reliable just based on the actual manuscripts, the number of manuscripts. Church, the scientific and scholarly fact of the matter is the Bible has the highest quality, the highest quality of reliability in its manuscripts than any other document on this planet. That is, that is the scholarly, scientific fact of the matter by far of any other ancient document. Of the 20,000, 25,000 plus copies, ancient copies we have, they are identical with a 99.5%. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's better than my 90% from 10 years ago, Shell. <laughs> right? So they all have variants, so we're not gonna sugarcoat that. But when all told, you bring 25,000, not seven text messages together, but 25,000 together, and you compare them, 99.5% accuracy. So when people say, oh, well, the man has changed the Bible, it's like the telephone game, the whole thing, don't let that get you on your heels. And listen, the burden of proof is on them, not on you, right? You have this document that has been proven to be so reliable, and then someone just wants to say, oh, it's just unreliable. Well, you need to prove that. A simple thing you can even just say, I've, I've had this kind of conversation with people before, is, you know, I, I've, I've heard that argument, I understand that argument, um, I, that argument makes sense, sort of, you know, on, on the surface, um, but I've never really seen any evidence of that. Can you, can you show me some of that? Because I'd love to learn more. 99% um, of the time, there's nothing that backs up that claim. It's just a really easy to regurgitate sort of attack. And the reason why it's an easy to regurgitate attack is because most Christians don't know how to answer it. So it doesn't get refuted. It just gets thrown out there and you're like, oh yeah, oh, I, I never thought about that. But it's actually pretty simple. If you, if, you, if you approach the Bible the way we approach other ancient manuscripts, the Bible has a lot to stand on. And that kind of uh, very glib statement doesn't have as much to stand on. Another reason why the Bible's translation is not like the telephone game. So say for instance, some early Christians decided to make some changes they can change scripture. I can change scripture. I can self-publish the Joby version of the Bible on Amazon if I wanted to, right? But what's my problem gonna be, right? Haven't anyone cross-checked my information with the thousands of thousands and millions of copies that have been before me, right? I can change scripture. I can preach a different gospel on Sundays, right? But you guys can cross-check me, right? There's, there's people that went before me. There's books that went before the, the version I write. So if people back then wanted to change things, they could maybe sneak into that proverbial closet and change that one scroll, but they'd have to figure out how to change the other 10,000 manuscripts that are already out there spread across through Asia and the Middle East and Europe. And the other students and disciples of other apostles, they're already out there. Do you think those changes are gonna sneak through? 
When you have a misinterpreted text being compared to tens of thousands of other texts that agree with each other, it's easy to spot the fake. It's easy to spot the fake. We did it just with seven text messages. We could tell the one fake word in, in all of them. You'd have to not just make the change to that, that one change, that one scroll. You'd have to somehow find a way to convince everyone else and all the other regions to also change their scrolls so that they can't cross-check through history. So I'll give you a perfect example. You guys have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Back in 1947, the oldest copy of the book of Isaiah we had was from, written in 750 AD, right? So just 1,300 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, that, decent math. Good enough. Um, but Isaiah was written in 750 BC. So we're talking about 1,500 year span. That's a big span from the copy we have to the original. A lot of potential change could have happened in that 1,500 year span. Someone could have snuck in and changed all those writings of Isaiah. Right? That's a long time. And there's less copies of it back then too. Pretty easy it seems like. And we would have no idea if someone changed it in that 1,500 year span. We would have no idea. But in 1947, a little shepherd boy in Israel discovered some ancient scrolls that were in a cave and those dated to 200 BC, All right? So we're talking a thousand years older than the current copy that we had. Now, think about this. This is a scary moment for, well, for both Jews and Christians because it's their scriptures too. Scary moment because what if we translate that, that thousand year older, all of a sudden just a thousand years older, what if we translate it and it's all different? That undoes everything, doesn't it? That's, that's a scary moment for the church. So they, and you'd think that there would have been a lot of changes that happened at that time, but as they translated through these, and by the way, with those Dead Sea Scrolls, there were fragments from every single Old Testament book, except for, I think, Ruth or Esther, I forget which one. Every Old Testament book, there was fragments from one of every Old Testament book. And Isaiah happened to be a thousand years older than what we previously had. Once they translated it, it was identical to the one that's in here with just a couple little spelling variants like we've talked about, but identical to the book that you hold in your hand. Nothing changed, nothing changed. There's something like 99% accuracy, 98% accuracy. So let me remind you what we opened with. Psalm 119, verse 89 and 90. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Church is not just firmly fixed in pages and in books. It is firmly fixed in the heavens. Firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. God has proven that. A thousand year gap, no problem. Proven his faithfulness to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. I bow down towards your holy temple and I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. God values his word. Even if we wanted to change it and make all these things, I mean, and, and people do it, people twist scripture all the time, but God remains faithful to his word. And it's upon us 
to dive into the word to make sure that I'm preaching the right word, that you're studying the right word, that you're listening to other teachers that are preaching the right word. It's, on, it's, it's our responsibility to do this, right? Just because God's word is fixed in heaven doesn't mean that everyone who talks about the word is, is actually speaking truth. His word is fixed in heaven, not, not Joby's word. When Joby's speaking God's word, that's fixed in the heavens, right? So it is on us to live in this book, to know this book. This is how we know God himself. He's given us his son. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us his word that we would know him, that we would know of his faithfulness, his steadfast love that endures to all generations. We can stand confidently on this word. I'm not saying you're not gonna have doubts. I'm not gonna say you're gonna like everything in this book. Right? One of the things I was talking about with, with the, the high schoolers a few weeks ago, there's stuff in here that you're not going to like. There's stuff in here that I don't know. I mean, who, who loves the, the idea of hell? I don't, I don't love that idea, but I have a choice to make. I'm either going to change this unchangeable book to fit my imagination and my desires and my theology, or I'm going to ask the Lord to change me to adhere to this book. Either God is going to be God or Joby's idea of God is going to be God. So there's things in here that aren't, I mean, Jesus himself said there's, there, I, he has a lot of hard sayings, right? There's hard sayings, hard things to believe. But we have to understand that if this book, if God's word is fixed in heaven, then we have to come to a, a place where we're saying either I know better than God, and so I'm gonna kind of twist and change things, or I'm gonna ask God to help conform me and my stubbornness, my pride, my fear, and again, church, doubts are, are good. Doubts are okay. Don't be afraid of doubts. God, God's not afraid of your doubts, right? He's not afraid of your doubts. Doubts are good. They, they help you wrestle. So embrace those, wrestle with them. But just know this, that the Bible that you hold today matches up with the most ancient of manuscripts. And those texts have thousands of other texts that have matched up with each other. And every time we find an older manuscript, it is always matched up. So you can disagree with this book, but you can't deny the fact that it has not changed. It has not changed. The reason culture picks on the reliability of the Bible, but not the reliability of Homer's writings, is because if this book is true, something has to change. Caesar's writings could be true, and it doesn't affect us. But this changes everything. If, if this is true, then this changes everything. This is why culture pushes back on this and not the other writings. And so as I was telling the kids you know, a few weeks ago, you know, there's there going to come a time when they get older in high school, into college, as adults, you're going to wrestle with God. You're going to question God. You're going to doubt God. You're going to wonder where God is. And that's, that's just a part of life. But if at very least we can walk in life knowing and being convinced that, you know, I, I disagree with this book, but something bothers me in my heart because I, I know it's actually, I know it's accurate even though I don't like it, right? That, that's, a, that's a good little tether to pull you back, right? Because we're all gonna wander at some point and in some way. We're all gonna push back on this book in some way. But if we are at least convinced that this book is true, that it has not changed, that's at least uh, God having like a foot in the door of our heart, right? That's hard for us to shake that kind of a thing. And so we ask ourselves, do we want to conform this book to our image or do we want God to conform us to his image? 
We ask God to change us, to help us, to love this book, love the truth within it, and believe that they're trustworthy and true. So next week, we're going to be looking more deeply at how this book can actually bring that change as we marry uh, the Word of God with prayer, the gift of prayer. How, does, how do the truths in here not just be information and facts and kind of uh, historical things, but how does this Word live and dwell inside of us? How do, we, how do we have this word do the change that we desire? And that's not just by reading it or just knowing it, but it is by marrying it with this gift of prayer, meditating on Scripture, going to Scripture as your source of light. So we'll be looking at that next week, the marriage of the Word of God with prayer so that this book can transform us and conform us. How this book connects us to the power of Christ and power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Um, I wanted to, uh, just kind of on that note, um, I wanted to pray the, the opening scripture. Um, I think if, if we have it up there, you guys uh, can put that up there. Um, learning how to pray scripture is just a really valuable, such an important thing to, to learn as a practice. Um, it's good just to do the kind of freestyle type prayers, but when we can pray scripture, we're really... Uh, we're taking this fixed word of God uh, and bringing it to our hearts in a different way, meditating on the word and uh, using it in a way that um, uh, it, it's like using God's glossary, using his definitions. Um, and so I want to pray just uh, by praying the word there. It is good. Thank you. Um, so as I pray, you can look up and scan your eyes over the word or you can close your eyes, whatever. But I, I want to pray this word for us because this word speaks about what we've looked at today. Uh, I want to ask the Lord to... Uh, to help us and bless us with his word. Lord, as your word tells us, and as we saw today, your word is fixed in the heavens for all generations. Your word is upright. All of your work is done in faithfulness. And as we sang earlier, you are always good. You are always reigning on the throne. You love righteousness. You love justice. And this whole earth, even with all of its darkness, even with all the, the things like death and pain and sickness, the earth is still full of the steadfast love of you. And we're grateful for that, Lord. It's by your word that you made the heavens. It's by your word that you created me. It's by your word that you created this church family. And by the breath of your mouth, you've created the whole host of heavens. You've gathered the water of the sea as a heap. I and mean, for us, we, we, we try to pick up water out of an ocean or out of a pool and it just seeps through our hands, but you can just pick up the waters like a heap, like you're carrying a big load of laundry. You put the deeps in storehouses. These are things that we can't even fathom. What does this look like for you to have this kind of power? You do all this by the word of your power. You uphold all things. And so here we have this great gift. We have our Bibles. We have them on our phones. We have them in apps. We have multiple copies at home. Billions of copies. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Help us to see the great gravity of that, that your very word that is upright and fixed in the heavens that, and that created the heavens and earth, you've given it to us in, in, the form, in this, this form of this book that has truth that sustains us. 
truth that carries us, truth that changes us. So God, help us as your, as your people, your sons and your daughters, ignite in us a desire, a passion for your word. I know it's, it's not easy. We, we're very distracted people. But based off of the things that many uh, of my brothers and sisters here, what we wrote uh, on December 31st, I know that they want to grow in, in just good habits and rhythms and just a passion for the word. And so um, we're, just, we're crying out to you. We need you to work in our hearts. We need this desire. We take this book for granted and we don't want to take it for granted. So help us to do this as a, as a, as a family, as a community. Uh, it's just, it's hard, if not impossible, to just do it on our own, just to muster up you know, a love or a discipline or whatever. So help us to do this together. We know we need it. We know it's good. We know it's steadfast and true, uh, but uh, our, our flesh is weak. So we thank you, God, for giving us this great gift. Help us to love it more each and every day. And it's in your mighty name, your name, which you have elevated above all things next to your word. It's in that name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.